everybody sleep well last night? First and only day or night at camp. Kevin's saying no. I, I slept in a hammock last night. I got a rude awakening when the bell rang this morning, and then I waddled off and took a shower after putting up my hammock. So I slept well. Um, but this is our last day of camp, and our theme, obviously, is the party is on the inside. Rye's coming. Am I doing something wrong? Yeah, I slept outside in a, in a hammock. My, okay, my dream is to someday hike the Appalachian Trail. It'd be awesome the hammock can do it. But I'll probably bring both. Just in, can you go with me? We'll, we'll talk. Okay. So, anyhow, uh, we're talking about the party on the inside, right? And, and we went through and we said, well, God has invited us. There is a party. We're able to go to said party. Um, but we can reject him. Uh, we can go the wrong way, but that leads to death. Uh, last night we went and talked about uh, if we accept, if we say, God, yeah, we want to be part of your party. We want to be part of your kingdom. We believe that you are who you say you are. Then we can go in. But from that point on, it's our responsibility to dance. We have to walk the walk. We can't just talk the talk. We have to be real. We have to live a life that says, yes, I do believe in God. This morning, a party on the inside. We're talking about going through trials, going through tribulations. We're talking about living a life that says, I believe in God, even when things get hard. When things get difficult. Because let's be truthful. Life is hard. Just go to school next week. You're going to have like 23 tests or something. Okay, maybe not. Dee Dee will, because she's a biology major. Silly Dee Dee. But <laughs> life is difficult. We lose parents. We lose friends. We lose loved ones. Things don't go the way we planned. Hardly ever do they go the way we planned. So we're going to start off today by looking at the early church. Uh, it, right here, um, we're talking early church is about the time um, that the apostles are around. Apostle is a word that means one who is sent. We're looking at the 12 apostles, disciples of Jesus, and also um, Paul. Is he his apostle? He's sent by Jesus. Remember that little uh, deal he had on the road to Damascus? Jesus pops up, changes his life. It's kind of interesting. We talk about seeing the light all the time. An encounter with Jesus is life-changing. Paul actually had that on the road to Damascus. Um, but Pentecost is when we can trace back the earliest beginnings of the church. See, at this point, um, God is, is ascended into heaven. We see over in Acts 1.8 that he um, says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They are sent. Jesus is saying, Disciples, I am sending you. You are apostles. You are going. You will be the light that shows who I am. You will be the light to say, this is what life is about. It is not about all these things that are so temporal, all these things that you find temporary pleasure in, but it is about me. It is about living a life for me because I love you, and you need to do the same thing in return. You need to love me and show love to others. So Pentecost. Um, Pentecost, I have up here, is the day Jewish tradition held that laws were given. Um, laws given, referring to Mount Sinai, Moses giving laws, stone tablet, all that fun stuff. Um, but it, it's also um, just a festival. So, a festival, Pentecost. People are coming from all around the world to Jerusalem. All the Jews from around the world. I shouldn't have said all around the world. Everybody. Jews. They're coming to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They're coming for this grand celebration. And know what? There are Jews everywhere around the world. Because just think about how many people attacked the Jews in the Old Testament and took them captive. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, um, Cyrus and the Persians. Um, <laughs> The list goes on and on and on and on and on and on forever and ever and ever. Amen. Um, but 
whenever, whenever the Pentecost comes, people are coming from everywhere. And you know what? The Jews have been living in different areas. They speak different languages. So you know, it's kind of hard to communicate sometimes when you have people from this part of the world and this part of the world and this part of the world. Everywhere, it's, you just walk up to somebody, I don't know how to talk to you. We have the same faith, but uh, I, don't, I don't know what to say at all. The disciples are together. The apostles, they're together. And then they receive the ability to speak in tongues. They are able to go up and talk to people in their native tongue. So Peter, uh, it's in there, and then he can go up and talk to people. He just starts blubbering things. He's like, oh, I want to talk to you. And someone's like, oh, they speak the same language. It's like crazy, mind-blowing. How in the world is this happening? Through the power of Christ, the power of God. They receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Uh-oh. PowerPoint. Down. Is it coming back? I'd be deeply saddened. Hello. I'll move it higher. Oh, it's back. That's cozy. Okay. Uh, but we see here the early church, there are thousands coming to know Christ. This is where the early church is formed, mainly right here at Pentecost, where everybody is coming to know Christ, and there is the basis for the church. Um, so, the, over in Acts 4 is, is one of my favorite verses, um, just looking at this. Uh, it says, or verse is, um, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned land, or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Early church, this is looking pretty awesome. But at the same time, in the back of my mind, the first thing that I think whenever I read this, um, after going through a humanities program at Milligan, was socialism. Socialism, or a word that you probably know better, communism. It kind of sounds like that to a certain extent. We're going to divide up all our goods and sell all our goods and give them to people. And you know what? If you know anything about communism, socialism does not work. Why? Because people are greedy. We, we talked about this. We're, we're all about us. We're all about me. We're all about mine. I want my things. Uh, but the reason that it works here is because it's not about us. It's not a government official saying, mm, I want you to give all your possessions, and we're going to equally distribute them to everybody. It's not them saying It's Christians coming forward and saying, well, because of what God has taught me, because of what I believe, I'm going to go and give what I have for the betterment of all so that there's no one in need among any of us. This right here is really, really awesome. This is where I wish that all churches were today. Because we wouldn't need food stamps then. Why would the government need to give people stuff? The church, we're selling our stuff. We're giving to the poor. We're giving to the needy. And it's not that being poor is necessarily bad. It's not like that has an effect on your salvation. But it's kind of... An, 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 we should be providing for the poor. There's no dignity in being poor. There's no dignity in not having a home. We need to be looking out for people. These guys in the early church, they are doing that. Okay, um, but more importantly, the masses, once again, they're being saved. This is the formation of the early church. Okay, so the early church after the early church. People get confused because they say the early church, and some people mean, well, a thousand years, or fifteen hundred years, or five hundred years. Early church, um, what we were looking at before, is until the apostles die off. Uh, most of them are kind of kicking the bucket around 80 A.D., um, John, the apostle, probably lived to about 120 A.D., so he's living a little bit longer because 
he, frankly, he wasn't martyred. Uh, but the early church after early church. Um, this, this, like I said, is when the apostles died off. But the early church looked pretty different than how we define church. Uh, it, it looks pretty different. When we think of church, we think of, oh, we are going to a building. We will sit there and not really talk very much. Maybe our Sunday schools are good, so we'll respond a little bit. Um, but we're going to sit in there for a while. A pastor's going to come up, preach. I'm probably going to tune out about halfway through. And after I'm done tuning out, I will think about where I will go to lunch after the service and who I'm going to hang out with. Uh, typically, that's what it's like. That's what it's like with me <laughs> when I was growing up in church. Except I would get taken out and spanked every so often because my dad was a youth minister. That was embarrassing. Um, but that, that's what we look at. The early church does not look like this. Um, for, for starters, a lot of times they were meeting, the early church after the early church, they were not meeting in churches. Mind blown. Where were they meeting then? They were meeting in homes. Um, part of this was due to persecution. Part of this was because the Roman Empire just didn't really accept them as a, as a religion. Uh, so they're meeting in homes, and what does it look like? Do we have a pastor getting up and, and speaking for 45 minutes? No, we, we have a reading of Scripture. And then they sit around and talk about the scripture. This is what the early church looks like. They gather in a place. They have communion. They have the Lord's Supper. They talk about God. I mean, I think that's something that's missing a lot in our lives, personally. I mean, we go, we do the church thing. We have the activities at church. But, but are, we, are we discussing it? Is it becoming part of our lives? Are we learning through talking to other believers? Are we just sitting back and going, oh, that was awesome. Let's go eat lunch. That happens a lot. Now, that's not to say that the early church with the apostles and the early church after the early church, it's not to say it was perfect. I mean, 1 Corinthians, I mean, just look at There's some messed up stuff in there. Early church is not perfect. It's far from perfect because there's people in it that are not perfect because no person is perfect except the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, same thing here. They're not perfect people. But they have some good stuff going on here. Uh, next slide. Uh, so go figure. In both of these, what we consider the early church, there is persecution. Um, just looking at it, whenever we look at the life of Christ, this is during the Roman Empire. Um, the Greeks have been wiped out. Rome has taken in. It's expanding its empire. It's getting bigger all the time. And here, um, just some of my choice emperors, to just kind of give you a little picture of what it looked like for them. Nero, 54 to 68 AD. Uh, Nero was a crazy guy. Just frankly, he was crazy. When Rome was set on fire, his imperial city, it is burning. He's dancing up on top of in, in his palace, dancing and playing a lyre and singing about another city that burned. Okay, that's a little weird. Your city is burning and you're singing and dancing. Like, no. Okay, you're a little bit off your rocker, Nero. Um, like I said, uh, Paul um, is probably martyred during this time. And also we have Peter martyred. And if you remember Origen, who I talked about a little bit um, on the first night, Origen says that Peter went into his martyrdom a different way. He was crucified, um, but he did not feel worthy to be crucified like the Lord Jesus Christ. He was crucified upside down. <laughs> but we talked a little bit about not you, the Jews not wanting to use the word God, not overuse it because it was such a holy word. Uh, Peter doesn't even want to be crucified in the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ was. That's pretty big. Um, Trajan. Oh, wait, one more thing about Nero. Um, we're talking about persecution. Uh, man, he's crazy. 
he used the bodies of his martyrs to light the gardens in his in his gardens. If you're a Christian, he finds you. You're dead. Uses the body to light the gardens in his palace. The oil. That's pretty sick. Uh, Trajan, 98 to 117. He's not as bad as Nero. He's not a crazy guy. He's not uh, persecuting Christians in that manner. But he's up here because he sets the precedent for most of the Roman Empire. This is generally the bare minimum all the way up to the time of Constantinople, or Constantinople, Constantine in the year 324. What Trajan has is this guy named Pliny write him, and he's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with Christians. Do we kill them? Do we let them go? What happens? Trajan writes back and is like, um, dude, this is kind of what I want you to do. We're not going to look for Christians, but if we find them, we're going to tell them to sacrifice the idols, and if they're not down with that, we're just going to kill them. Okay, that's what we're going to do. They don't sacrifice the idols. We'll call them, kill them off. That will fix the problem. But don't really look for them. If you find them, just get rid of them. And, and Pliny's like, okay. That's about the year 111 A.D. Um, if you look at Roman em, uh, emperors, if they have a D name, usually they are not good for the Christians. Um, Decius, 249 to 261, one of the bigger persecutions, uh, one of the bigger persecutors of Christians. Um, he had an edict um, that he threw out that said everybody must go and sacrifice to um, the, the pagan gods. You have to go and sacrifice to Apollo and Athena and all those wonderful gods that the Romans held so dear. And um, when you go and sacrifice, you're going to get a certificate that is like, hello, I have sacrificed to an idol. And everybody's going to have that. And soldiers are going to be able to check uh, at will to see if you have this on you. And if you don't have it on you, well, then we're going to ask you to go and sacrifice the idol. And if you say no, we very well may kill you. We're at least going to torture you, but we're probably going to kill you. This is Decius, pretty bad guy. Um, Diocletian, he's probably one of the worst out of the Roman rulers. Um, Diocletian, 284 to 305, 303 to 305, he passes four edicts. Um, these edicts do things, or edicts or rules or commands, um, just... Uh, what he wants his empire to do. He takes away and arrests all the clergy. If there's clergy out there, they're going to go after you. They're going to seek you out and make sure you're punished um, especially well. If there's any Christian um, books or anything found, they're all burned, destroyed. Um, he keeps on going with Jesus' rule of sacrificing and then getting a certificate that says you're sacrificing the pagan gods. And if not, um, you're killed. He, he, he does stuff like this. And this is persecution... Uh, that is just widespread across the empire. Um, some of these, like Nero, Nero, his persecution, basically in Rome, Diocletian, it's everywhere during this time. All of Christians are being persecuted. And you no, know, we look at persecution as such a bad thing sitting over here in America, um, where we're all happy and we have our food and our nice warm bed. And, and well, some of us have our nice warm bed, but we we. We look at persecution as something all, it's terrible, it's really bad. But no, there, there are good aspects to persecution. I mean, obviously it's not good for people to die. But just think about the effect it had on Christianity. People who were living for God were living for God. Because there was no, like we said, sitting at the party and not doing anything. You couldn't do that. Because eventually someone was going to come up to you and say, Hey, do you believe in God? And yes or no was going to mean your death. And it wasn't just one instance and we go, oh, that's terrible. I'm glad they stood up for Christ, but that's terrible that that happened. That's, that's common. 
It doesn't surprise people. It doesn't surprise people if you have a family member become a Christian and immediately they're wiped out. It just happens. So the people who are living for God are living boldly. And they know they can lose it all, but it's worth it because they know who God is. Okay, there we go. So why persecute Christians? Um, these are the Roman view. Um, basically, Christians were monsters that were hurting society. That's the main reason that Romans were not looking um, to, to have Christianity go. They let it go for a while. I mean, there were a lot of religions. Um, they thought, oh, this one will probably fizzle out like all the other ones. So it, it's all good. And maybe they'll end up believing in, in, in polytheism, many gods. So what, what were some of the particular reasons they did not like Christians? Christians believed in one god. Okay, so you look at it and you're like, okay, that's not really a big deal. But whenever you realize, um, I think I have this on here, like third, that if you believed in one God, you didn't go to the temples. And if you didn't go to the temples, the Roman authorities did not get money because you had to pay to go to the temples. So the Roman government losing out on money because Christians believe in one God. Um, Christians did not fight in the military. Um, basically, the Roman military was uh, conscription, which means they kind of just pulled you in. You're like, okay, everybody be ready to fight, and then we'll pick the best out of those people, and we'll go and fight at all times. Because, I mean, Rome Empire, always expanding, always getting bigger. Uh, so Christians would refuse to fight. And those people who became Christians in the army, they, they would just be like, well, I, I'll stay with the army because I'm here. I'm going to obey the authority that's placed over me, but I, I will not kill anybody. I'm, I'm going to turn the other cheek because that's what I'm about. I'm not going to live in a way that hurts other people. Romans don't like this. It's not good when you have soldiers quit fighting on the front lines. Um, they believe Christians would re revolt. Uh, Christians had this great Messiah, king that they worship. And know whenever there's a bunch of group of people getting together on a similar idea, there's always a chance that something crazy is going to happen. There's always a chance of some movement or, or something moving in a different direction. The people in power in the Roman Empire do not want to see a revolt because they are in power. They do not want their power taken away from them. <laughs> but the funny thing is, they say, oh, Christians can revolt. The Christians are the same as not joining the military because they don't like violence. Do I understand this? I don't. <laughs> okay, now the last few are, are interesting ones. They believe that Christians were incestuous. They believe that they were having relations with their brothers and sisters. Now, this is like, okay, that's kind of really weird. Uh, where does that come from? Well, <laughs> brothers and sisters in Christ. Everybody would be like, hey, brother, I don't know what a good Greek name is. Specialists, something like that. But they, they would say brother and sister in Christ. People would get married and they'd be like, hmm, do you hear about those Christians, that small group? Yeah, I heard they call each other brother and sister. Yeah, and they marry each other too. Like, hmm, that's a little sketchy. Brother and sisters marrying. We're, we're not down with that. The Romans are pagans, but we're not down with that. Interesting. Um, obviously, this is not happening. It's, it's just terms that they use. It's nomenclature. It's words that come with the grounds. Um, Christians eat babies. Okay? Are Christians eating babies? No. There's a thing called exposure um, that ancient empires would do. They would take the children, and if it was maimed, if they were injured, if you're like Mephibosheth and could not walk, if, if it was a girl and they didn't want another girl, they leave it outside to die. Just take the baby, throw it outside. This is ridiculous. We get thrown in jail for that, right? This is happening all through the Roman Empire. We don't want the kid, we leave him outside. Christians would go by and pick up these children and take care of them and raise them. Because life is so precious. This is what Christians are doing. But what are the pagans doing? Are the Romans are sitting back and going, hmm, they're taking babies. I bet it's for those weird gatherings that they have where they have mills. 
I bet they're eating the babies. Ridiculous. Christians are cannibals. Well, that kind of weaves in with the babies. Um, but let's think about what do Christians do when they get together? They have communion. Oh, oh, they remember, they remember Jesus, the eating of his body, of the bread. And they remember Jesus, the drinking of the blood or the wine. Christians are mean to get eating bodies and drinking blood. What is up with that? <laughs> That's not a very nice thing. <laughs> so, uh, just a bunch of stuff like that. Basically, Christians were different, and the Romans didn't understand them. And they looked like a threat. They were taking away money. They weren't fighting in the military. And then on top of that, they had a bunch of weird customs that they didn't want to take time to understand, so they were going to go after them. And we look at them and go, oh, stupid Romans. If you would have only taken time to know them. Uh, I'd just like to remind you, if we take time to know people, a lot of times we're going to look at them in a different light than we look at them now. That weird person that we never really get along with in class that sits back in the corner. If we go and talk to them, we're probably going to see them in a different light. And frankly, we should be talking to them because we're Christians. God created us all. We're equals. And being in the image of God, we should be talking to them in the first place. Romans, they don't really care. This is a weird group that's bothering them. So they want to get rid of them. So let's take a look at some real people that were martyred. Okay, from the get-go, we're just going to look at the apostles. Um, given the only one that was actually found in the Bible, um, written was uh, James, son of Zebedee. Um, we find him martyred in Acts 12, 1 through 2. But the other ones were passed down um, through tradition that they were killed. They were martyred in different areas of the world. Um, Peter martyred, um, we said that Origen talked about him, and that he was martyred upside down because he did not want to be um, crucified in the same way that Christ was. We have Andrew martyred through crucifixion. Matthew martyred. James martyred, killed by the scribes and Pharisees. Jude martyred. And you know what? I see whenever I see all of the apostles going through and dying, I see people who believe in something. You know, a lot of people say, not Jesus didn't. He didn't come back from the dead. He died and it was over. He died. It was done. If you... If you were in this situation and you knew that Jesus didn't come back from the dead, are you going to go and lay down your life for him? I mean, let's be serious. You know him firsthand. You see him. You live with him. You talk with him. You do life together. If he is really dead, if he doesn't come back from the dead, are you going to be killed? Are you going to say, I'm not going to be crucified in the same way he was? No, you probably don't care. You probably go back to your homes and, and you do life. You go back to being a tax collector or go back to being a fisherman. And you think, wow, I just wasted a lot of my life because our leader just died off. No. These guys knew that Jesus was the real thing. They knew that he did come back from the dead and that there was truth in everything that happened and that they needed to tell others because it was vital to their survival. It was vital to the life of the world. It was vital to the life of everybody that they were going to come in contact with. So let's look at another martyr. We've, we talked about the apostles. Um, Sanctus is an example of a martyr. I believe this is like second century. Oh, yeah, there we go. Second century, 177. Um, and his body, it says, and his body was a witness of his sufferings, being one complete wound and bruise, drawn out of shape and altogether unlike human form. Christ's suffering in him manifested his glory, delivering him from his adversary and making him an example for others, showing that nothing is fearful than the love of the Father is and nothing painful there in the glory of Christ. So um, this guy right here, um, Sanctus, he was taken um, captive, 
and, and they, they just say, ask them straight, are you a Christian? What do you know? What are you about? And he just answered over and over, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. They beat him. They burn him. They rip him apart. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. Because nothing is painful where there is in the glory of Christ. He knew that Christ was suffering with him. He knew that Christ had died for him on the cross. And he knew that he was supposed to return what little he could back for him. He wasn't going to turn him down. He wasn't going to say, no, I don't believe in that guy. It had been easy. All he has to say is, no, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I'm not part of that. He walks away. He could even walk away and go like, ha, I tricked you. But he doesn't. Because that would be looking out for himself. That would be selfish. Was Jesus dying on the cross selfish? No, it was selfless. Uh, right here, Sanctus, he, he's trying to live in a way that's selfless to say, I'm going to give back to God. I'm, I'm going to make sure that whenever I get wiped out here on the earth, because you know what, this is, just, this is just a little thing going on right here, this torture, this pain, just a little thing in comparison to where I'm going. When I die off, I'm going to make sure I'm in heaven with God. Um, I don't have her up here. It just hit me. Perpetua, um, she's pregnant whenever she's taken in. Um, she has a father in the aristocracy. Uh, he comes in and begs her over and over again, says, hey, come on, come on. Just say you don't believe in Jesus. You're released. And she says, no, no. No, well, why would I do that? It would be like someone coming to me and saying, hey, just say that your dad isn't your dad. Just say, yeah, he, he isn't my father, and then walking away. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. It's the same thing, except... Though I love you, I love my father more, my father in heaven more. She went on to get martyred. <laughs> and one thing I found funny, her hair was down when she was going out into the Colosseum to, uh, to be attacked by the lions and bear and I think the panther. Um, but her hair was down and she said, hey, before I go out there, I want to fix up my hair because I don't want it down like I'm in mourning. Because this is the proudest, the most important moment of my whole entire life. She didn't want to look like that she was in mourning. And then as a second thought, she was a girl and wanted her hair fixed before she was killed. Go figure. Go girls. Um, so, so why are they doing this? Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Those who want to save their life will lose it. We can't save our lives. We don't have that ability. Just like the man who, who came into the party and he wasn't wearing the wedding robe. You can't sneak your way into the heavenly God. You can't sneak your way into saving your own life. The only way that you can go and make something of your life is if you go and you lay it down for God. That might not mean literally laying down your life. That may be standing up for him um, in school, standing up for him uh, in, in situations where it would be easy to back down. Or it could be literally laying down your life. It could be literally laying down your life for God. But we need to be living it not to gain our own life, but to live for Christ. Our lives belong to God anyhow. He made us. He created us. We should be giving something back. There we are. Ooh, I'm getting dizzy. Uh, praising God in persecution. Um, so we talked about um, the apostles, the way they were, um, they were put to death, some of them. We talked about some other people who were persecuted during the Roman Empire time. So um, let's, let's look at um, some people who, who, who weren't martyred, but who are still joyous in the situations that they go through. Um, we see an example of this in Acts 16. 
Um, Paul and Silas met a slave girl who made money through prophecy and through the name of Jesus. It was removed. Okay, so this is girl of prophecy. I don't know exactly how they find out she's a girl of prophecy. Maybe she's wearing a t-shirt that says, I am a girl of prophecy. I make money for my own. I don't know. I don't know what this looks like. But they come in and they're like, ooh. She has an evil spirit upon her. She has a demon. And so they remove it. And everybody's like, that is great stuff. The people are selfish, and this girl was making money for other people. These people are not happy. In fact, they're very angry. And so they go um, to the leaders in their area, and they go, hey, these people, they're disrupting society. I, I can't find out what the weather is tomorrow because they took the spirit out of my girl. Can, can, can you do something about this? Um, and so they're flogged, and they're jailed. And what, at, at most times, if this happens to us, I mean, if we're jailed, I mean, we don't even have to be jailed. We can get in trouble. We can get in a car wreck. I got in a car wreck. That was scary, like really scary. I'm like, my life is over. Everything is terrible. I'm not jailed. But these people, are they're not freaking out. I'm freaking out like the, my life's over whenever I get in a car wreck and life is going to continue. These guys, they go to the jail. And about midnight, it says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They're shackled at the feet. They can't, they can't really move. They're in jail, and they're like, praise be to God. And they're singing songs. Like, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. And Silas is probably the, in the morning. And I mean, they're, they're going through, and they're singing, and they're praising God. And it says that people are listening to them. You know, whenever you go through those hard times in your life, you're going to be given one of two options. You're going to be able to sit there and mope and think, oh, woe is me. My life is terrible. My life is terrible. I, I need to be doing something different. Oh, God, why, why have you done this to me? Or you're going to be able to say, no, what? God is in charge. He has a plan. I know where I'm ultimately going. And I know that God loves me. And I know he's going to take care of me in every situation. And whenever you make one of those decisions... Regardless of where you go, whether you're to the left or the right or you're somewhere in the middle, people are going to be noticing. Those prisoners were listening to him. Given they weren't able to leave, <laughs> but they were sitting there and listening. And just think about what's running through their minds as they're sitting there. They're like, these guys are nuts. <laughs> I mean, they're in jail. What in the world? What, what do they have to be happy about? But no, there's probably some in there that are getting it. They're like, what do these guys have that I don't? What am I missing? What's different about their life, and how can I get it? We don't see uh, any of the lives of these people uh, after this story ends, uh, but we do get to see the jailer. But we, we don't know what impact out of them. We don't know what seeds were planted. We don't know what people are watching us. We don't know how it will affect them. But people do watch us, and it does affect them. And we need to be living in a way that it is honoring the Christ so that whenever we get back, when we get to heaven, maybe we can look back and say, God will say, you changed this person's life because you were uppy and happy and looking at the bigger picture even through this hard time in your life. And that got the attention of somebody. Wouldn't that be something beautiful? To know that just by the way you were living life, you didn't even have to talk to them about Christ, but the way that you were living your life oozed Christ and they said, there's something different. I want that. So, uh, let's continue in Acts 17. I, sa I said the the people in the jail didn't really hear it, but the jailer did. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. Then the jailer woke up and, woke the, and saw the prison doors wide open. He drew his sword and is about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. I mean, this is typical. 
if you're a Roman soldier, you'll lose your prisoners, you're going to die. So he's like, well, I'd rather not be, I'd rather not be crucified. Um, so I think I'm just going to take my life myself. Uh, so Jerusalem Sorian is about to kill himself because he supposed the prisoner would be saved. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, they answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds, and he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house, and he set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Um, some things that I find interesting in here. Um, there's submission to authorities. Now, notice, we, we don't always agree with what the authorities say. We don't always agree with our parents. I mean, who always agrees with their parents? I still disagree with my parents. I don't even live there all the time. I disagree with my parents. But you know, we are called to submit to authorities. If you want to look at that, check out, check out Romans 13 sometime. That, there's some good stuff on that. Um, but they submitted to authorities. They were placed in jail. The doors open, and they could have went, thank you, God, we're checking out of here. You know, if they would have checked out, the story was different. We probably wouldn't have blamed them. Like, oh, God did a miracle. But they sat there like, well, I think there's something more behind this. And besides, we were thrown in, in jail. I mean, we're not going to disobey them. They probably didn't agree for the reason they were thrown in jail, but they still submitted to authorities. We don't always agree with our parents, but we should submit to their authority. We don't always agree with our teachers, but we should submit to their authority. Not because they're always right and they're perfect, because they're humans, they're fallen, they mess up. But because they have been placed in that authority position, and we need to honor them. Because sometimes we're going to be in that authority position as well, and and we would like that to be reciprocal at some point. I mean, do unto others as you would have them do to you. It's pretty simple. But but they, they were joyful. They were joyful the whole time. And, and they were staying there because we're like, we love God. He's taking care of us. We think this is the right thing to do. Because they did that, the jailer came to know Christ. He and his whole family baptized because they submitted to authority. He's like, there's something different about them. They were worshiping when they came in. They didn't run away when it opened. And, and they had truth to speak. They were joyful. Someone came to know the Lord. He's in heaven now because of them. Because they didn't run away. Because they sang even in the worst of circumstances. So, uh, they all have something. Uh, what, what do these martyrs have? What, what, what do these, these, these disciples, these apostles have in Scripture that makes them so different? Uh, I, I would say that they, the something they had is a clear understanding of who God is. A creator, for it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. God created us. I think they understand that. Because you know what? Everything that is created has a purpose. Really, you make a watch, what is it for? It's to tell time. You make a guitar, what is it for? It's to play music. If we are created, which we are, purpose. God knit us together. We are special. We are wonderful. There's no one like us, exactly like us, anywhere in the world. And just like the clock, the watch television, anything that's made has a purpose. We have a purpose. We have a plan. God is going to use us. He is our planner. 
For I surely know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for your harm. Plans to give you hope in a future. He's going to put us where we need to be. He's going to open doors to lead us in the direction that we need to be moving. Because he made us. He has a plan. He knows where we need to be. And if we're willing to just say, God, I don't have anything. I can't do this alone. I can't do this by myself. You're in charge as the way it should be because you created me with a plan. God's going to give us where we need to go, whether it's in our jobs or, or whether it's in our daily, our daily walk. He's going to open the door, show us where we need to go. And whenever we're walking in his plans, what do we have to fear? Whenever we are in Christ, what do we have to fear? Nothing. Because we know that God is making our plans, making out what our life is going to be and not us. Because not, if we're making the plans for our life, that is something scary because I am a terrible planner. Terrible planner. Usually I plan things, they fall apart, and I show up 20 minutes late to whatever I plan. I mean, that's, that's what my life looks like. <laughs> but because God is the planner ultimately of my life, I can have confidence in as I go through my day because God is the one in charge, not me. Um, I have a fear. God is the great lover. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Just like the song we sang. Nothing can separate us. Even when I run away, your love never fails. We can run away from God. He still loves us. We, we, can, we can give all our attention to something and, and work it up to a, a position of idol, whether it's a a uh, significant other, or if it's video games, or television, or it could even be friends and family. We can put those on pedestals where they're way up there, and we go, this is more important than God. God still loves us. And what's more, he's jealous for us during those times. I mean, we generally think of jealousy as a bad thing, but the creator of that universe is jealous for us whenever we say this thing is a little bit more important than you. Even if we don't say that verbally, even if it's just our lifestyle, God's jealous for us. Nothing can separate us. And I think by understanding some of these things, you start to get the picture where you can sit back and you can go through the hard things in life and think, okay, I, I, I might not know what I'm doing, but I'm created, I'm loved, I'm a child of the one true king. I have purpose. And God has plans for me. So whatever trial I go through, whether, whether it's this king, this emperor trying to wipe me out, or if it's me being thrown in jail, God has a part in this. God is here. God is moving. He will make good come out of this. And then if we sit back and go, well, God loves us, so his plan is ultimately for our good, we sit back and say all of these things, then we can go through our daily lives and with joy and living in a way that just says, I'll give everything up for you, God, because I kind of understand where you're coming from. I mean, it's a continual basis of learning who God is. But through taking some of these things and applying them to our lives and realizing them every day and waking up and saying, God, I love you and I know you love me too, we get to move on through life, and we can face whatever challenges we face because we know that it's not just us facing them, but God facing them with us. And he never forsakes us. Okay, the big picture. Love is up here again because it is, it's just crazy. I mean, love just encompasses everything. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envious, boastful, arrogant, or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in, its tr- in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what perfect love looks like. 
And perfect love is what we get from God. I mean, the Beatles probably had it right whenever they were writing their song. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. Now, if you have God, love, it is all you need. It is all you need. And you can face all these things. So, Christ died for us. That's the big picture. The ruler of the universe loves us. That's the big picture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. And then 1 John 3.16, which I almost like it too much. We know love by this, that he laid down his only life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Little children, let us love not in word and speech, but in truth and action. God loves us. He sent his son. We're given the opportunity to respond on a daily basis. Like We can come in and we can know him, but to love is, is something that we have to do every day wake up. You, you realize, Jesus commands us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know what? God wouldn't command us to do something that is just appealing. He wouldn't say, have the warm fuzzies for your enemies all the time, because it's not going to happen. I don't have the warm fuzzies for most people. <laughs> love is an action. Love is a verb. Love is something that we are commanded to go and do because it is possible to do. I might not like somebody, but I can learn to love them. But it takes effort. We generally think of love as the thing that just kind of pops up. You're like, oh, I naturally love you. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, big whoop. I mean, seriously, big whoop. In that instance, you're just looking to love because it's convenient for you and comes naturally. Why would God command us to do something that just happens? It just happens. You just love everybody. You're a Christian. Woo, everybody's wonderful. Life is cotton candy and unicorns. It, it, it doesn't work like that. We're commanded to go and love other people. And how do we show love for Christ? How do we love to show love for others? Little children, let us love not in word and speech, but in truth and action. We're not just talking the talk, we're walking the walk. Because I would argue, until you have to give something up for Christ, until you have to give something up for him, until you have to give up something for someone that you love, I don't know if you really love them. Because it's not until things get hard that you find out what's real. It's not till you get thrown in jail or you, you, you're persecuted and someone takes a gun to your head and says, hey, do you believe in this? It's not until something like that happens that you find out if the love is real. It's not until till you're put in a situation where you can either obey God or run the other way that you find out if love is real. Do you stick up for God? Your best friends, would you stick up for them and everything? People who aren't your best friends. We love them and stick up for them anyhow. If we live our lives to know the Creator, to love Him more every day, and to share that love with others, there is nothing left to fear. We can live our lives with purpose, without fear of the future, because we will know for sure that our future lies in the loving hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. How are these guys living boldly? How are, how are they going through these situations that are so difficult and coming out on top and living in ways that people go, wow, there is something different about them. They're loving God. They're knowing that God loves them back and that removes fear. 
We can say that we believe it, but once we finally take that on and believe it and apply it to our lives, fear is it's nothing. Because we know that ultimately we're not of this world. We know that ultimately we will be with Jesus Christ someday. So those big things down here, they get a little bit smaller. Because we know that ultimately we're for God. He loves us. And we're going to have a future with Him. If, if we keep this in mind, these things in mind, we'll always have a party on the inside. Even when it's not looking so great on the outside. You bow your heads in prayer. God, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to come to you. A lot. We, we get the, the word over and over again, and we're given the opportunity to come up and accept you. And after that, we're given a chance to walk the walk, but it's, it's, it's difficult to do that. And it's, it's also difficult when we enter those hard times to go, it's, it's, it's difficult to put our trust in you. I mean, obviously. But whenever we get the full picture of who you are, what you've done for us, uh, what you're doing for us, and the plans that you have for our lives, it kind of just kind of turns our world on end. And, it, and it's something that we can't just do once and be done with. It's something that has to be renewed. It has to happen every single day so that we are, are, are getting closer to you, that, so that we can wake up every day and go through new trials um, with a positive focus because we know that you're in charge. God, I pray for each and every one of the, uh, the guys and girls in this room tonight, or today, rather, uh, that you help them to realize this as they, go, uh, as they leave camp. Uh, they got to hear some lessons this weekend. They, they got to play some games. and uh, They're probably on fire for you. That's what generally happens after a week of camp. But help them to renew their, their, what, how they see you every single day um, so that they can go through all the difficult times that they've already gone through and the difficult times that they will face and just be comforted by the fact that you're with them, you love them, you have plans for them, you made them. God, I love these guys out here, <clears throat> and I know that you love them as well. And uh, I just pray that you're with them, and you watch over them, and you comfort them through those times, and help them to get to where you want them to be so that they can live lives that shine for you, so that they can live lives that make a difference. God, I love you, and I pray this all in your name. Amen.